the parable of the lost son, Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look! All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you're a living and a speaking God. And we pray that you would encourage us and speak to our hearts this morning uh, from this familiar parable. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a friend of mine was traveling in a railway carriage uh, across the UK uh, when a soldier who was uh, o- o- going off duty and in full fatigues started chatting with her, or probably more accurately, I should say, he started chatting her up. Uh, now, she wanted to uh, make it very clear that she wasn't very interested in him, so she dropped into the conversation quite quickly that she'd become a Christian, that she was a Christian. Um, She just sort of dropped that into the conversation. 
And the squaddy's response wasn't exactly what she'd expected. Wow, he said, wow, that's effing amazing. I became an effing Christian just last week. He went on to tell her how he'd become a flipping Christian and how flipping brilliant it was that Jesus had come into his life. When my friend uh, finished telling me that story, I said, I do hope that he finds a good church and someone who can disciple him. Now, there's nothing superficially wrong with that response. I mean, it would be a great thing for a brand new baby Christian to find a church and have someone to disciple them. But the attitude in my heart when I said those words was frankly one of disapproval. I wasn't impressed about this soldier chatting up my friend. I wasn't impressed about his bad language. And my gut reaction reveals to you my Pharisee heart. That reaction in the story of the prodigal son was an elder son reaction. A much better response would have been to say to my friend, wow, did you rush to the dining carriage and buy a bottle of champagne, pop it open and start a party? Working out the application of Luke 15 isn't all that difficult. Jesus tells three stories because the Pharisees have been grumbling. And they've been grumbling because Jesus welcomes sinners and even eats with them. Shock horror. So Jesus tells the story of a man who goes in search of a lost sheep, a woman who searches for a lost coin. When they find what they were looking for, they throw a party just like the party that's thrown in heaven when a sinner repents. In the story of the prodigal, Jesus is telling us about a lost son. The story also ends with a party, but not everyone joins in. The story of the prodigal falls into three neat acts. Acts, Act one, the first part of the story, is a story of wild rebellion from verses 11 to 16. And I think to understand uh, the story of uh, the prodigal son, we, we need to really understand what the younger son was saying when he asked his father for his share of the property. See, he's not asking his dad to write him a big check. He's not asking his dad to sign over a share and property portfolio to him. What he's really saying is, Dad, I wish you were dead. Sell your farm. And I think we expect, naturally, the father to react to that question by saying, Who do you think you are? Get out of here. Who are you speaking to me like that? And one of many remarkable moments in this parable is the father doesn't do that, he doesn't yell. He doesn't give the boy a slap in the face, either verbally or physically. Instead, and remarkably, he grants the boy his request. And I don't think that's about weakness or foolishness on the father's part, but rather the father is trying to leave the door open for a restoration of the relationship. Because as soon as the younger son has spoken, as soon as he has said, in effect, Dad, I wish you were dead, 
their relationship has been terribly fractured and broken. And even if the father refuses the request, the relational damage is already done. And it's the relationship that the father cares about, not the property. And because the father cares about the relationship with his boy, he allows his son to rebel in the hope that one day he will be able to welcome him home again. So the father gives his son the freedom to reject his love. And tragically, the son takes that freedom in both hands. He travels to a distant country. He squanders everything in reckless living so that when a famine strikes the land, he's left helpless. He's wasted his money. His fair-weather friends desert him. He's left with the direst of options for a Jewish man to feed pigs. He is so destitute that even the pig's food looks attractive to him. But we're told no one will give him anything. Act one, wild rebellion. Act two, amazing grace from verse 17 to verse 24. So imagine the younger son sitting there in front of a trough of pig swill, thinking to himself, hmm, that looks yummy. And finally, he comes to a realization. He remembers that back at home, his father's servants have plenty to eat. He's facing starvation, but back in the village, even the slaves don't go hungry. So he cooks up a plan. His plan is to go back to his father and essentially to admit that he has stuffed up, but then to ask for a job. Verse 18, I'll arise and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired workers. Now, the younger son's repentance or his response in verse 18 and 19 is partial but not true repentance. He's kind of part of the way there, but not, I think, the whole way. See, he recognizes and he puts his hands up and realizes that he has stuffed up, and he does say sorry for that. But he still thinks that he can come up with a solution. He still thinks that he can work his way out of the mess that he's in. So he owns the problem, but he also tries to define the solution. It's a pattern of worldly repentance that I think we so often easily fall into. You probably know what it looks like. We make deals with God. I'm sorry, God, that I got angry. I'll go to church twice on Sunday. I'm sorry, God, that I was rude to my wife. I'll have a longer prayer time tomorrow. The younger son has not truly repented while he's still finding his own solutions to the problem. He's still trying to fix things himself. And it's in that half-repentant, kind of works-oriented spirit that he begins the journey home. 
And we're supposed to imagine this bedraggled, filthy figure of the younger boy limping his way along the road, clothes disgusting, he stinks, he has no traveling companions, he is truly alone. But he has not been forgotten. His father is standing on the balcony looking out over the village. Verse 20, when the boy was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. See, the son has begun a journey towards home, but it's the father's journey, the father's journey out of the house that is the true turning point in this story. By every human expectation, I think the father should have stayed indoors. By every human expectation, we think that the dad is going to vent his anger and uh, he's going to exact some kind of rebuke or punishment from his boy. Humanly, that's what we expect. But what actually happens is precisely the opposite. The father gathers up his robes and runs through the village in full view of the whole community. Instead of humiliating his son, he humiliates himself with the reckless abandonment of his love. He sweeps the boy into his arms and showers him with kisses. And the younger son begins the words that he has been rehearsing. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But that's where he stops. Amazingly, he doesn't now come out with the second part of his plan. He doesn't ask to be treated as a hired servant. And this is now the moment of true repentance. The moment when he confesses his rebellion and offers no solution, but simply receives and accepts his father's love and grace. But go back to that image of the boy on the road, dirty, disheveled, limping along. The father runs up to him, sweeps him into his arms. As his dad gets close, the boy says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called called your son. His dad embraces him, but the boy pushes him away. You interrupted me. I hadn't finished what I was saying. Treat me as one of your hired servants. The boy could have refused his father's grace. He could have pushed his dad away. He could have pursued his own solution. He could have insisted on being a slave and not a son. But true repentance means accepting God's grace. And for all of us, our Christian journey begins at that moment, broken, kneeling on the road, and simply accepting our Father's grace. This is the very heart of the gospel, but tragically, not everyone is celebrating. So let's move to Act 3, from verse 25 to 32, and I've called this sullen hostility. 
So the party is in full, full swing, the fattened calf is on the spit, the music's pumping, the guests are showing their moves on the dance floor. But the older son is still outside. He's had a long day in the fields, he's come home tired and cranky. He demands to know what's going on, and when a servant tells him, he refuses to go inside and join the party. And again, we need to try and understand culturally what's going on in that refusal. Easy, perhaps, for us to think about this as being like a teenage boy who has gone to his bedroom and slammed the door, but that's not what's going on here. No, the older son's behavior is really humiliating for his father. This is not a teenager slamming his bedroom door. Perhaps the closest equivalent that we could imagine would be going to a wedding reception and everyone standing in, their, in the reception line waiting to welcome the guests and the bridegroom isn't there. He's sitting in the car texting on his phone, humiliating everyone in the wedding party. That is what's going on at this point, and we again expect an angry rebuke. We expect the father to silence the younger son, and we expect the father to order his older, sorry, we expected the father to silence the younger son, and now we expect the father to order the older boy to come into the house. And again, remarkably, the father doesn't do that. There are no orders. There's no command. The father works to try and heal the relationship. So for the second time in the same day, the father makes a journey. For the second time in the same day, the father travels out of his house. The first time he went out to the younger son, now he goes out to the older son. And again, everyone in the village is watching. See, the dad in this story is humiliated by both his boys, but because he loves them, he endures the shame and reaches out to both of them. But this time, the response is different. The younger son accepted his father's grace and love. But the older son responds with anger and hostility. You remember the younger son was going to ask to be treated like a servant, like a slave. But now the older son puts himself in the position of slavery. All these years I have slaved for you, he says. He doesn't accept his father's love. And he positions himself as a servant. Both these boys have humiliated their father. Both have renounced their sonship and placed themselves in the role of a servant. Only one is repentant and only one is restored. And at the end, the story is left hanging, isn't it? It's not resolved. We don't know what happens next. And of course, that's exactly the point, isn't it? Will the older son come in and join the party? 
Will the Pharisees come in and join the party? Will I come in and join the party? Or will I stand outside and grumble that the Lord Jesus welcomes sinners and even eats with them? Well, the answer to that question could hardly be more important. Because how we answer that question reveals whether our hearts have truly understood God's grace. There are two sons in this story, both rebel against their father, but only one understands grace. And shockingly, it is the religiously respectable, rule-keeping older son who is left out in the cold. Both of the boys in this parable teach us about grace. The younger son teaches me that I've only understood grace when my Christian life has, become, has begun at that moment on the road, broken, kneeling, disheveled, accepting the Father's love and welcome, and not bringing any of my own solutions. But the older son teaches me a different lesson. The older son teaches me that I've only really understood God's grace if I'm willing to extend it and offer it to other people. There's only one place to begin the Christian life, and that's with the younger son. But I think the question that I'm challenged by in this story is, I've started as the younger son, yes, but who am I becoming? Will I become like the father, filled with compassion and love and running recklessly down the road to welcome the sinner? Or will I become like the older son, resentful and bitter and hard-hearted? Will I become an older son, despising those who don't live a moral life? Will I become an older son who looks down on people who break the rules and invade my space? Because the truth is, if, I've, if I become the older son... I never truly understood grace in the first place. So if I've truly understood grace, then absolutely I will crack the champagne open when I hear that a soldier has become a flipping Christian. If I've truly understood grace, I'll throw a party when the last and the least and the lost come to Jesus. If I've truly understood grace... My heart will be shaped by this passionate and extravagant love of the Father and not by the critical, bitter grumbling of the older son. Well, why don't we pray that God would do that great work of grace in each of our hearts? Would you join me as we pray together? The Heavenly Father, we do pray that your Spirit would work in each of our hearts and lives that we might truly understand your grace and extend and offer your grace to other people. Uh, we, we, we pray that we would become more like the Father and not like the older son in this story. And we pray that you would do that work in us for our good and your glory.
We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.